Well, if you have a Bible, take it and turn to Romans chapter 8, the passage that was just read. As you were turning there, I'm going to pray for us. God, as we now open up your word and turn in these few moments to look at these uh, very famous words penned by the Apostle Paul, we ask that that if they are new truths, we might understand how ancient they are. And if they are old truths, we might grasp them newly. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, since Easter, we have been in a series where we've been working our way through Romans chapter 8 and asking the question, what does life look like after and in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And now we come to what must be one of the most famous verses in the entire Bible. Romans eight twenty-eight, And we know... That for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And we know that all things work together for good. Uh, Many people have this verse uh, maybe on their desk somewhere. You maybe have received a card where you've gotten it. It is very popular, and it's a verse that's brought a lot of comfort to a lot of people. And you can see why. I mean, all things for good. All things for good. Uh, there's a uh, one of the most popular ways uh, throughout the last, I don't know, half century or so of presenting the gospel to people has started like this. God has a wonderful plan for your life. And here Paul talks about God's wonderful plan for your life. For those who love God, all things work together for good. We know, Paul says. We know. But do we know? We know that all things work together for good, but do we know? Let's be honest, it's not always the easiest thing to believe, is it? I mean, you look at circumstances in your life, I look at circumstances in my life, and I wonder, is this working together for good? Is this part of God's wonderful plan for my life? Was God's wonderful plan for my life cancer? Was God's wonderful plan for my life losing a child? Was God's wonderful plan for my life depression or divorce? Are these part of God's wonderful plan for my life? You see... It has brought comfort to lots of people. But it also brings a lot of questions. And let's be honest, it can feel sometimes uh, like a Christian platitude. I mean, is Paul just being the, uh, the, you know, perennial optimist who's just like, you lose your job and it's like, it's okay, man, it'll work out for the good. It'll be better. You'll get a better job. You don't get into your, the grad school that you want. It's okay. You'll get into a better one. 
you break up with a girlfriend, it's all right, there's a, there's a better person around the corner. Is that what Paul is doing? I mean, how does he know that it will all work out? And, and what if it doesn't? We know, Paul says, but do we know? See, the verse can raise our spirits, but the verse can also raise a lot of questions. At least for me, it does. It raises a lot of questions. Questions like this. Did I miss God's wonderful plan for my life? Did I do something to get me off track? I look at my life and think about that. I mean, think about it. If you were to write the story of your life, let me ask you a question. If you were to write the story of your life, does it look like the life that you have? Because mine, it doesn't. And I've got a lot of regret and things that, that haven't turned out the way that I think that they should. And so I wonder, did I miss it? Did, am, I on God's, am I on plan B or C or D or maybe Z? Well, I mean, Paul does say, he qualifies it. He does say for those who love God. He doesn't say this is true for everyone. He says it's true for those who love God. For those who love God, all things work together for good. And so then I wonder, well, maybe it's that I don't love God enough. And how much do you have to love God for all things to work out together for good anyway? Maybe you've asked yourself that question. And, and what is this good, by the way? The good that he's talking about, is it a big house? A great career? Fame and fortune? A family? What is the good? At Romans eight twenty eight, it it can raise our spirits. It can bring a lot of comfort, but it also can bring a lot of questions. It can raise a lot of questions. I want to answer those questions, but I think to answer those questions, actually, we can't look at Romans eight twenty eight. We have to keep going and look at verses twenty nine and thirty. See, because in verse twenty nine, Paul talks about the goal of God's wonderful plan and for your life, and in verse thirty, God talks about the guarantee for God's wonderful plan for your life. So, what I want to do is I want to look at that goal in verse twenty nine. Then I want to look at the guarantee in verse thirty, and then let's return to verse twenty eight and see if we can make some sense of these questions. So first, look, look at the, ver- the goal of God's plan. Verse 29 lays it out. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. See, this is God's wonderful plan for your life, Paul says. God's wonderful plan for your life is that you might be conformed to the image of Michael Jordan. No? God's wonderful plan for your life is that you might have fame and fortune. No. God's wonderful plan for your life is that you will have, uh, you know, three kids and a white picket fence. No. God's wonderful plan for your life is not your dream job or your dream spouse or your top college choice. God's wonderful plan for your life is that you might be conformed to the image of his son. That's God's wonderful plan for your life. 1 John 3, 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. That's what God is doing. 
He's making you like Jesus. He's conforming you into the pattern of Jesus. He's making you like Jesus in every respect. He, his wonderful plan for your life is that you would be conformed into the, the moral image of his son. Who knew no sin. His wonderful plan for your life is that you would be conformed to the emotional life of his son. Who loves the good and hates the evil. His wonderful plan for your life is that you might even be conformed to the bodily empowered resurrected life of his son. When he raises you from the dead. That's God's wonderful plan for your life. And here's what that means. It means that if God's wonderful plan for your life is to conform you to the image of his son, then we shouldn't expect for that to happen in a way that's fundamentally different than the way that it happened to Jesus. You see, what was his life like? Was his life one of of prosperity and fame and fortune? Now, the author of Hebrews says that he learned obedience. Obedience he learned through what he suffered. And so Paul says just a few Verses earlier that we will share in his glory. We will be glorified with him if we share in his sufferings. See, the Christian life is not one that goes from strength to strength. But it's one that goes through weakness and pain and suffering and death. And in that, he conforms us to the image of his son. We have to be clear on the goal. You know, it's... um. It's been 32 years since the window of our life was opened up and the light shined through because we took out the VCS or the VHS, VHS. I don't even know what it's called anymore. The VHS and we put in the Karate Kid. You remember Karate Kid? Daniel Russo, uh, LaRusso has uh, just traveled from New Jersey. He's ended up in L.A., uh, he's sitting there in L.A., and uh, he's got this eclectic neighbor, uh, Mr. Miyagi. And uh, Daniel, he meets this girl, and in the midst of meeting this girl, he finds out that this girl, well, you know, her boyfriend is Johnny. And Johnny is a member of the Cobra Kai. And Johnny doesn't like that. So the Cobra Kai, this karate club, right? This is for those of you who don't know, and then for all who do, you're loving it anyway. Uh, <laughs> So the mem- Johnny is a member of the Cobra Kai, the karate club, uh, and uh, he basically starts bullying, and the Cobra Kai starts bullying Daniel. And um, all of a sudden, he- he's getting beat up until Mr. Miyagi comes and intervenes. From that point on, Daniel's name is changed. Not unlike Abram's name is changed. He is now Daniel's son. And Daniel's son uh, basically... Uh, comes under the tutelage of Mr. Miyagi, and he starts learning karate. But it doesn't feel like he's learning karate, because basically he feels like Mr. Miyagi has made him his, his, like, uh, his like duty boy, right? So next thing you know, Mr. Miyagi has him outside painting fences and, you know, waxing cars. Wax on. Wax off. <laughs> and Danielson that's his name now, starts getting frustrated. And he's like, wait, I want to learn karate. You're just like putting me to work like a slave. And then all of a sudden he comes to this realization that all the things that he's been doing, the blood and the sweat and the tears in, you know, waxing on and waxing off and painting was all teaching him muscle memory for defensive fighting. 
And trust me, I have, I have done this. It works. <laughs> it works. I was out waxing my car the other day. Not for my car's sake. It's because, you know, you just never know who you're going to run into on State Street. So, the whole time, though, that was not in the script. <laughs> the whole time, uh, Danielson is sitting there, and he is, he is getting frustrated because he's like, why am I doing all these things? I thought I was going to be like the ma- big man on campus. I thought you were going to make me uh, someone who... who uh, looked really strong and, and powerful, and yet you're making me look weak. But you see, the whole time, what he doesn't understand is that the goal is being met. But the only way to reach that goal is through different means than he could ever imagine. See? And the goal that God has in your life is that you would be a master conflict. No, that you would be conformed to the image of his son. That's what God is doing in your life. That is the good that he is working out in your life. God's goal. And because of that, he takes us through these things that get us to that good. But you say, wait, wait, if it's, if it's a life of weakness and suffering and dependence, then how do I know? Because that doesn't sound too great. Well, verse 30 talks about the guarantee of God's plan. In verse 30, we read, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And I want you to notice that this is like a chain, an unbreakable chain. Each one has a link to the other. Those who are predestined are glorified because... Paul, notice, he says, also, also, also. The chain cannot be broken. And so it guarantees that you will be conformed to the image of God's Son. So let's look at each of these in turn. First, he predestined. Uh, predestination is a, um, even the word of it, the mention of it, can be unsettling for some folks. Uh, it can cause lots of consternation. Maybe some of you are, have consternation right now. And, uh, and I understand that because when I was, uh, first time I heard the concept of predestination, I was a junior in high school. I was at Evangelical Christian School. Uh, that's the name of the school, actually, Evangelical Christian School. It was an Evangelical Christian School. I wanted them to change the name to Extra Cool School, but that never went forward. I'm sitting there in my junior year. I'm in my Bible class, and... We uh, have this guest uh, speaker who comes in to talk about the church. He's from River Oaks Reformed Presbyterian Church. You know, it's like that—that's a—that's a lot of—that's a—that's a lot of words. I don't understand half those words, but I'll listen. So I listened. He started talking about predestination, and I sat there and I was so distraught. Uh, I was like, I looked at my teacher who went to this church, and I was like, "You mean Christians believe this?" You mean you believe this? Are you part of the cult? I was so I was so confused. I was so unsettled and so distraught that I went home, went to my room, wouldn't come out of the room that night, and the next day I skipped school. I was so distraught I skipped school. My mom had to made a, set a meeting with my pastor because I could not go back to school until I had some resolution on this. So I was unsettled. 
So if you're unsettled, then I understand. I really do. But I want you to know that Paul does not use this word to confuse us. He uses it to comfort us. That's the context. Now, what is predestination? Predestination is God's settled and loving determination to conform you into the image of his son. Predestination is God's settled and loving determination to conform you into the image of his son. And this is the beginning of God's wonderful plan for your life. Predestined. And and it, it means to set before time. It means to be fixed beforehand. That means it is guaranteed. Now why? Why does God predestine us? What is the rationale behind his choice? That's a a question that we can't help but ask it. And some people, they they look and, and they think, well, maybe the answer is there in verse 29. Verse 29, it says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And I say, oh, it's those whom he foreknew. So... So uh, maybe what it is is that God, uh, since he's above time and can see all things and can look ahead into the future, he looks down the annuals of time and he sees something in us and that is what he, he looks at in order to predestine us. And so, for instance, some say, well, what he does is he, he foresees faith. Um, well... There's one problem with that, and that is that faith is nowhere in the context of this verse. It doesn't talk about faith anywhere around this part of Romans. Okay. Well, maybe maybe what he looks at and he sees is love, because it does talk about love, right, for those who love God. So maybe he looks ahead and he sees love in people, and he says, oh, because they love me, they love me, I will predestine them. But I want you to notice something. Paul doesn't say that God predestines anything, uh, God foreknows anything. What he foreknows is people. It's not a quality in people, it's people. Not their love or their faith, it's just people. And remember that this is an unbreakable chain. So those who he foreknows, he also predestines, he also calls, he also justifies, he also glorifies. And so that means that that if he's foreseeing people, then either everyone is saved, because God looks and who does he see? He sees everyone. Which is unlikely because of places in Paul, that Paul believes that because of Romans 2, 1 Corinthians 5. And so, either it's that, which isn't likely, or foreknow does not mean prior awareness. It means something else. What? I think we get a hint in the ministry of Jesus. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking, and he's talking about these people who prophesy in his name, and they perform miracles in his name, but at the end of the day, he's sitting at the judgment, and he says... Depart from me, I never knew you. Now Jesus is not saying, whoa, where'd you come from? I didn't know you existed. He's saying, I didn't have an intimate relationship with you. I've never had an intimate relationship with you. So when Paul says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined. He's saying, for those God had a a prior intimate relationship with. 
he predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. Well, that still leaves us with the question, why? Why did God do this? What rationale is there behind God's choice? You know, Moses takes up this question in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, Moses says, For speaking to the people of Israel, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you, there it is, to be, a, to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. All right, so why? Why did he do it? And you know what? Actually, Jews were asking that, have been asking that question ever since. The author of Jubilees, a text that was written around 200 uh, B.C., says, uh, well, it must have been because God did 22 works from the first work of creation to the last work of creation, and there were 22 heads of humanity from Adam until Jacob. I mean, was, he's just trying to get some rationale behind why God would do it. But Moses answers right here. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You were the fewest of all people. Why was it then, Moses? Deuteronomy 7, verse 8. But it is because the Lord loves you. Why did God set his love on you? Because he loves you. Why did God beforehand determine to set his love on you throughout all eternity? Because he loves you. You see, there is no rationale behind the love for the love. You can't get outside of it. There's no rationale behind God's gift of salvation besides the gift itself. It doesn't correspond to anything in us, there is nothing that corresponds uh, to God's choice that is in us or outside of us or anything else. The rationale is contained within God's love. And that's it. That's as far as we can go. Why does God love you? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. Because he loves you. And you can't correspond that with anything in us. You say, well, that, that's a bit unsettling. That makes for a bit of a, a rational universe and world. Yes. Yes. This is the radicality of grace. That God's gift does not conform to anything within the recipients. But it is his unconditioned gift. And what this does is it levels every type of superiority. See, what makes you a Christian? What makes you a Christian and not some of your non-Christian friends? You think, well, because I've chosen to follow Jesus. Well, yes, but why did you chose to follow Jesus? Well, because I realized that he was a savior and I put my trust in him. Yes, but why did you realize he was a savior and you put your trust in him? Because, well, I, I, I was... Humble. Well, why were you humble? Because I was convicted of my sin. Why were you convicted of your sin? You see, you chase it back, and it ends up being this. Either you're just a little bit better, or a little bit smarter, or a little bit humbler. There's something that is a little bit more worthy in you than your friend. Or it goes back to God's unconditioned election. It's one or the other, you see. 
There's either something in you or it's not something in you. Because, you know, if, if we choose to be a Christian, don't we think that's a good choice? Those of us who are Christian? Yeah. Don't we think it's a wise choice? Yeah. Don't we think it's a smart choice? Yeah. So are you better, smarter, wiser? No. No, you see, predestination says that before you set your love on God, he set his love on you. Predestination says that before you knew God, he knew you. Predestination says that before you accepted God, he accepted you. The 19th century preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, put it like this. I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterward. He must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? There is no answer to those questions. Says the love of God. And you say, maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, wait, no, no, no. I know you were formed, folks. And you say that this is supposed to be humbling, but you are like the least humble of all Christian traditions. Uh, and I, I actually, I want to say, yes, I agree with that. But you know why? It's because we actually don't believe in unconditional election. We believe that God elected us because we're just the type of people who would believe in something like unconditional election. We're just the kind of type of people that would believe in predestination. We're just the kind of people that have our doctrinal ducks in a row. You see, but that's actually not unconditional election. And that's why. See, if we sit in this enough, if we sit in this enough, then it will humble us. But it will also comfort us. It will comfort us because of this. See, nothing could qualify me, and nothing does qualify me, for being the object of God's love. And that also means that nothing could disqualify me from being the object of God's love. He loves me because he loves me because he loves me because he loves me. And God's purpose is settled, that he set his love on me and will conform me into the image of his son. Those who predestined. But that's just the first link. The rest I'll go shorter on. It's a pity, but I think that it's important to spend some time there. Those he predestined, Paul then says, to the second link in the chain, he also called. Now this word call in Paul is very important. It's his favorite term to describe Christians. How he opens up the letter to Romans, he opens it like this. He introduced himself as one called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God in 1-1. And then he talks about those who are in Rome. He writes this letter to those who are called to belong to Christ Jesus 1-6. And then he says that it's to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Uh, Called ones, that's Paul's favorite term for Christians. And it's important that we get the full implications of what he's saying or the nuances. When Paul uses the term call, he doesn't mean invite. 
This isn't an invitation that goes out that you give a response to. When Paul talks about call, he's talking about the same God, the dynamic, when he talks about it in Romans 4.17. This is the God who calls things into existence that did not exist. See, the call of God is a dynamic and creative call. It's the call that said, let light shine out of darkness, and there was light. It brings into existence that which it calls. Now, my words are not very powerful. Uh, I've learned that, especially with a four-year-old daughter. I can uh, say lots of things, but the reality is, is that at the end of the day, I cannot force my daughter to do anything. I, I can't. My words just, they don't. But you know, there are a couple of times, there are a couple of places where my words are, are really powerful. They're really effective. Like, kind of have creative power. Actually, there's only, well, there are a couple of times. And, and, and one of them is uh, one of my favorite things to do. And that is, it, it happens when there's a man usually dressed in black and a woman dressed in white and they're before me. And we get to the end after they've exchanged vows and other stuff. And I say this, I now declare you husband and wife. You know what happens that moment? It's amazing. They become husband and wife. My words actually affect something. They actually bring into existence the thing that they said. I didn't say you were now husband and wife because they already were husband and wife. I said you were now husband and wife to actually make that a reality. That's how God's words are like. That's what his call is like. It is the call that brings us into the new creation. It is the call that, that, that makes us new creation and pours out the love of God into our hearts so that we then love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so we ask when we get to Romans 8, 28, who are those who love God? And Paul answers, those who are called according to his purpose. It's Christians. And so Paul says, those he predestined, he called, and those he called, third link of the chain, he justified. To be justified, what does that mean? To be justified means to be deemed worthy, righteous, accepted and acceptable. Because those whom he called, he deemed to be worthy, righteous, accepted and acceptable. Why? What makes them righteous, worthy, accepted and acceptable? Well, he says that it's those whom he called. Okay, so maybe it's that. It's the call. It's this new creation existence that we live in and dwell in and are. Okay, but wh- why did he call us? Well, he called those he predestined. Okay, but why did... So he, he, he calls those who he chooses to set his love on. But why did he choose to set his love on us? Because he chose to set his love on us. But why did he choose to set his love on Because he loved us. Because he loved us. Because he loved us. You see... Where this is going, there's no condition within us that makes us worthy. What makes us worthy is his work, what he has done. And when he calls us, he calls us into union with his son. The reality of the new creation. And it's by virtue of being united to him that we are conferred, that we have worth conferred upon us. Let me put it like this. Here's the implication. That what makes you worthy before God? Well, it is nothing you have done, nothing that you are, but what God has done. See, Christians are deemed worthy of God's love because they, not because they are lovable, 
Christians are worthy of God's love because they are loved by God, because they are called by God. Martin Luther got at this dynamic very well uh, in a, there's a paper called the Heidelberg Disputes. And in that, he says this, the Heidelberg Disputation. He says, the love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. Human love is responsive. It answers something attractive or desirable in an object it apprehends. To put it another way, we love that which is, at least in our opinion, lovable. But God's love, it doesn't have to answer to something that's attractive in the thing or desirable in the object. Rather, it creates something attractive or desirable in the object that it apprehends. I'm trying to think of an analogy. The best analogy I've ever heard on this is like this. I'm sure you all had it as a little kid, and some of your kids have it, but you know that favorite stuffed animal or that soft blanket. Now, you look at that stuffed animal or that soft blanket. Mine was Tutu, a little monkey. And uh, Tutu, Tutu had been, he was rough. He was not cute. He was kind of brown and ugly. There was nothing attractive or desirable, I would say, about Tutu. And he had been loved to even a more unattractive and undesirable place. And yet, you know, if there were a fire in our house, one of the last things, or there was a burglary in our house, one of the last things that the burglars would take would be tutu. Okay? Trust me. But if there was a fire in our house, one of the first things that my parents would have grabbed, what I would have grabbed, would have been tutu. See, Tutu was valuable and lovable, not because there was anything attractive in Tutu, but because we had set our love on Tutu. And in the same way, God sets his love on us. We are deemed acceptable, worthy, precisely because God's love confers us with worth through the reality of Jesus. Luther said it like this, God loves sinners, evil persons, fools and weaklings in order to make them righteous, good, wise, and strong. Therefore, sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. And that gives great comfort. Because I think most of us, most of our lives, are all trying to show ourselves to be worthy, accepted and acceptable. And we, when we feel like we're not matching up to that, we get a little anxious, to say the least. And we're all looking for the praise and applaud of others. It's, it's why, you know, it's why people do like, uh, I want to say young, like younger folks do this, but I've, I've seen you. It's not just younger folks, right? You put the picture up on Facebook and you're waiting for the likes. You're waiting for the retweets. You're waiting for the Instagram hearts or whatever they are, right? Why? Because it's, it's, it's this sense of like, uh, I put something out there, tell me I'm worthy, tell me I'm acceptable, tell me I'm loved. And when it doesn't happen, we get anxious. When we don't get the recognition at work, we get anxious. Why? Because we're looking to be found worthy, accepted, and acceptable. And it's so precarious. But here we find that we're worthy, accepted, acceptable for God. Not because of anything we are, anything we've done, but simply because of what he has done in us and for us through Jesus. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 And that allows you to rest. A rest in what, rest in what Jesus has done for you. Those he predestined, he called. 
And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. Glorified is the end. To speak of glorification is to speak of the perfection of the Christian life. We've talked about this um, a couple weeks ago, but, but glory is you operating on all cylinders, all you were made to be. In every aspect of your life, you are flourishing. In all your responsibilities, you are flourishing. That every aspect of your personality is flourishing. Uh, glory is, well, it's, it's LeBron in game seven, and it's, uh, it's Steph Curry in another game. <laughs> glory is to be in the zone in every aspect of your life. That's glory. And Paul says that those whom he predestined, he calls, then he justified, and then he says he glorifies. Now that, that's curious. It's curious for two reasons. Curious for those of us who know something about systematic theology, because we, we're wondering, where is sanctified? Why isn't that in there? Well, the reason that's not in there is because for Paul, what, glor- what sanctification is, is just inaugurated glorification. Sanctification is your glorified self breaking into the present. That's what he understands it to be. We are transformed from one degree of glory into the next. But the uh, other thing, though, that is curious, probably more curious than that, is why does he put it in the past tense? Glorified. We expect him to say those who he justified, he will glorify, but he says glorified in the past tense. Why does he do that? That is curious, isn't it? Well, some say it's because if God has determined it, then it's, it's so set in God's mind that it's as if it has already happened. I think that there's some truth to that, and I think that there's something to that, but I think there's more to it than that. See, it's not simply that God has just determined it. I would say that God has already accomplished it because Paul's fundamental understanding of who we are, who a Christian is, is they are united to Christ. And when he died, we died on the cross. When he was buried, we were buried. When he rose, we rose. When he ascended, we ascended. That is, Jesus has already been glorified. And Paul says elsewhere in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3, that our life is hid with God in Christ. That our true self, our future self, is already exists in God in Christ. That your glorified self already exists. That God is not bound by time, and neither are you and yourself. And that what sanctification is, is actually that future self breaking into the present. You're like, that is the bizarrest thing I've ever heard. No, it's not, because you all like Back to the Future. And you remember in Back to the Future, I'm going with 80s movies today. Marty McFly goes back in time, and then he goes back in time again. And what you see is he is there interacting with his future self is there, and his present self is there. And they're both overlapping in this time period. Uh, That's the best I can do. No, it is weird. It is hard. But it's true. Really and truly, in Christ, you have already been glorified. And so it's not just that God will accomplish it. God has accomplished it. And what happens right now is just that the present is catching up with uh, what already exists and what is ultimate reality in Jesus Christ. That's what's going on. Now, that means that your future is guaranteed because it already exists. 
It's safe with God and Christ. Now, what are the implications as we turn back to Romans 8, 28? Well, quickly, Paul says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, what this promise does not mean is it doesn't mean when bad things happen, truly good things will happen. Nor does it mean the promise is not that everything in your life will be easy. Certainly not that. Nor is the promise that if you love God, good things will happen in your life. Nor is the promise even that the bad things really aren't bad, the way a lot of Christians take it. The promise is not that the bad things really aren't bad, and that, but they're really good things. No, the promise is this, that God will take the bad things, and even the worst things, and he will use them and work them for good, because he will use them to conform you into the image of his son. There is nothing in this world that God will not use to propel you to glory and conform you into his son's image. That everything that happens in your life, God will use to mold you, to shape you, and conform you into the likeness of Jesus. That is the promise. And it's not blind optimism. Because Paul believes in the God who works out all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians chapter 1. And this is the God who from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory. See, this is the sovereign God who is sovereign over every circumstance in life and can use every circumstance in life for your good. And that at least includes the suffering of this present age. You mean all things includes my suffering? Yes, all things includes the suffering. Even the suffering that I undergo when I'm not persecuted as a Christian. Yes, even that suffering. Well, does all things include sin? Surely it doesn't include sin. Surely it doesn't include sin. And evil. There's a lot of sin and evil in the world. There's a lot of sin. A lot of it's recorded in this book. You know one of the most evil things that I think, most sinful evil things recorded in this book is? It's in Genesis when Joseph's brothers, they're a bunch of sons of Jacob, uh, and uh, Joseph is the favored son, and his brothers sell him into slavery. They basically sell him to his death. They go back, they tell their father that he died from an animal. But Joseph ends up second in command, stores away food for a famine that comes, and then his father and brothers migrate down to save the people of Israel. And you know what? It's through that family that Jesus comes. So yeah, even sin. There's a lot of sin in this book. You know what? Maybe something that's more evil, sinful story than that. Well, it's a king named David. One day he goes out and he, he looks out on a roof and he sees this woman named Bathsheba. He decides that he wants her and he coerces her. I mean, he's the king. He coerces her into having sex with him. She gets pregnant. He doesn't know what to do. He conceives, uh, he contrives a plan. It doesn't work. So what does he end up doing? He ends up killing Bathsheba's husband. Marrying Bathsheba. And it's through Bathsheba that Solomon comes and it's through Solomon that Jesus eventually comes. Even sin. You know, there's a more sinful, evil story in the Bible than that one. Jesus had had 12 disciples. One was named Judas. And the night in which he was handed over to a mock trial, 
It was Judas who betrayed him for a couple pieces of silver and kissed him on the cheek. Handed over the Son of God. And then the leaders of Rome and the leaders of the Jews, that they conspired together to crucify him, even though he was innocent. They crucified the Son of God. They killed the righteous one. They put him to death as a criminal, as a renegade, the only righteous one that ever lived. That is evil. That is horrible. And yet through it, God brought about the salvation of the world. So yes, even sin. Even your sin, because God is bigger than sin. Sin doesn't win with God. It's not that these things aren't evil, but God can use even sin, even these bad things. Do you know it? We know, Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Do you know it? And what difference would it make if you did? That your bad things will turn out for good. That God will use to for good, your ultimate good. That your good things can't be lost and that your best things are yet to come. As one preacher put it. What would it do? How much would we be unshaken? And be able to carry on in our joy? We know. Do you love God? Have you been called according to his purpose? Are you a Christian? Do you know this? Maybe you're here and you aren't a Christian. Do you know? Do you know that for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, do you know that all things work out together for their good? Don't you want it? It can be yours. See, because of the call, Paul says, comes through preaching. And so maybe even right now, God's creative word is coming out. To create you anew. Believe and be saved.